Please keep your Bible open. Except you, Liberty. <laughs> well, good morning, church family. It is good to be together. Uh, it is good to open God's Word together, and um, and I would uh, encourage you to keep your Bible open on your lap as I uh, as we walk through this passage together. Um, this is fun. I, I'm I'm not getting as good a view as you. Uh, well, I take that back. You guys are fun to look at too, but uh, I will forgive you if your eyes are wandering. Um, but uh, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? You ever stop and just ask that? I'm not just talking about like the decorations. Oh, this is cool. This is fun. But um, like church, why do we do this? Why do, why do we go to all the trouble and all the fuss for church? Why do we go to all the, the trouble of getting up, getting out of bed, getting dressed on Sundays? People get up early, practice music, um, all kinds of things going on, preparing to teach kids in, in their classes. And that's just Sunday. And then we've, we've got things throughout the week. We've got community groups. We've got fellowship groups. We've got youth group. Why, why, are, why are we doing this? What's with all the fuss? And is it worth it? You ever ask yourself that? Wouldn't it be easier if we just stayed home? Can't we just follow Jesus through prayers and podcasts? Why all the fuss of church? Kids, youth that are in here, you need to listen to me too because uh, your answer to that question today is probably, I'm here because my parents brought me. But someday real soon, you're going to need to have your own answer to that question. Is church worth it? Is it worth all the hassle? And I just want to say from the outset, I admit something. I'm a pastor. You probably expect pastors to think church is a big deal. You might even expect that it's in my best interest to convince you that church is a big deal. But here's what I'll say to that. Who cares what I think? I appreciate that. That's very encouraging. I don't care what I think. And I invite you to not care what I think. But if God has an opinion about this, then we should all care. And Ephesians 4 leads me to believe that he does have an opinion. So let's pray briefly, and then we're going to dive into this passage that uh, we just looked at. So please pray with me. Uh, Father, I pray that according to the riches of your glory... You would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we would be rooted and grounded in love and have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Would you use this passage in front of us today towards that end. Help me as I speak. Help my friends as they listen. May we be different because of this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling 
to which you have been called. So this is a turning point in the book of Ephesians. We've reached a turning point. Uh, Paul has spent the first three chapters of Ephesians telling us what God has already done. And now he turns a corner and starts telling us what we're supposed to do or what we're supposed to be in response to what God has already done. Because grace is free, but grace never leaves you the same. Grace is free, but it never leaves you where it found you. It's always calling you somewhere new. And so Paul begins this new section of this letter urging Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel he's just been preaching. Now, if it feels like Paul is just setting us up for failure, I sympathize. How could our lives ever be worthy of what God has done for us in Christ? But remember the prayer that Paul just prayed at the end of chapter 3? We looked at it last week. You can peruse it if you want. Anyone who prays a prayer like that and then caps it off by saying, and I actually believe you're able to do abundantly more than I just asked you to do, that kind of person has no problem calling people to a certain kind of living. He believes it's possible because of God. So we're going to break down this passage into two parts because I have a hard time paying attention to 16 verses at the same time. But there's this overarching theme in these 16 verses, and that theme is unity. God cares a lot about unity in his church. So if I could lead with a summary statement, a simple summary statement of this entire passage, it would be this. Christ has a really good design for maintaining and attaining unity in his church. Christ has a really good design for maintaining and attaining unity in his church. So verses 1 through 6 focus on maintaining the unity we already have, and then verses 7 through 16 talk about attaining a unity that we can grow into. So that's how we'll break it down. First section, maintaining the unity we already have Verses 1 through 6. So he says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you want to know where a walk worthy of the gospel begins? Think of all the things, all the places Paul could have started after making that urge. That statement. But here's where it begins. With all humility and gentleness. Those who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace among Christ's church will be humble, gentle people. They'll be the kind of people who put the interests of other people above their own interests. They'll be kind of the kind of people who show up not to be served, but to serve. They'll be the kind of people who don't cling to their own rights and privileges, but lay them down for the good of brothers and sisters. They'll be the kind of people who don't treat people as their sins deserve, the kind of people who overlook an offense when appropriate. They'll be the kind of people who are slow to speak, quick to listen, the kind of people who take care not to break a bruised brother or quench a faintly burning sister. If this is starting to sound like someone you know, you're right. The words that Paul uses for humility and gentleness, 
are different forms of the exact same words that Jesus uses to describe his own heart in those words we love from Matthew 11 when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is gentle and humble and we're called to be the same. And then the next characteristic of those who are eager to maintain this unity, Paul says they do it with patience, bearing with one another in love. I think this should be very comforting to us, that Paul assumes being part of a church is going to require patience and bearing with one another. That should be encouraging to us. That means there's nothing wrong with us, you guys. I take that back. That means there's a lot wrong with us, but it's not a surprise. We require patience. Anyone who's ever been in any kind of meaningful relationship with me has required patience. They've required, it has required them to be loving and forbearing with me. And as somebody who has the privilege to know a lot of you very well, I want to assure you the same is true of you. We require patience as we live together in relationship. And once again, if that sounds like the way our God treats us, you're exactly right. God has been more patient with you and me than you or I will ever need to be with anyone else. If this is how Jesus treats us, then let's live with each other in the same type of manner. This is what it looks like to be eager to maintain unity in the Spirit. Now, we're called to eagerly maintain unity in the church by walking in humility and gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance because that's the way of our Lord. But if we're maintaining a unity, if he's calling us to maintain something, that means we already have it. And that's what he points out in verses 4 through 6. Look back at that with me. He says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I think he's trying to make a point. Paul just spent three chapters laboring to show us the inherent unity of everyone who's been saved by God's grace, whether Jew or Gentile or American or cat lover. It's a unity based on what God has already done, so we already have it. Paul's point is clear enough. He gives these, this list of seven ones to help us understand that the things that unite us are far greater than anything that could ever divide us. The next time you feel distant from a Christian brother or sister, I recommend reading that passage and reminding yourselves of what you share in common with one another. So would you consider yourself eager to maintain unity in Christ's church? We already have it. Are you eager to maintain it? That's where Paul starts. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And this maintaining requires humility, gentleness, patiently bearing with one another in love, and it will be worth it. So there's a quick, a quick glance at 
maintaining a unity that's already ours. And my exhortation along with Paul for us all is let's be eager to maintain what we share. Let's pay more attention to what we share in common than what's different about us. The things we have in common are far, far weightier than the things that are different about us. Let's look at the second section now, which is the longer section, beginning in verse 7. So now Paul moves from maintaining the unity that we already have to attaining a unity that we can grow into. So look at verse 7 with me. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now this verse sets the trajectory for the rest of what Paul's about to say about growing in unity. So far, he's been talking about the things we have in common that unify us. Now he's actually going to talk about how the things that are different about us can also serve to unify us. Humility, gentleness, and patience will help us maintain the unity we have, but using the different gifts Christ has given us, as verse 13 will say, helps us towards attaining to a unity that we can still grow into. So over these next 10 verses, we're going to see a who, what, when, why, and how this is all supposed to happen. Um, But first we've got to do something about those curious three verses in the middle, uh, 8, 9, and 10. And thank you, Paul. Um, I'm going to try not to confuse myself while I do this. Good luck to you. But in 8, 9, and 10, we've got this interesting little... uh, kind of seems like a, another tangent that Paul goes on, but let's read that together. After he, says, uh, after he says that grace was given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift, he says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that, but, he also, but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Paul. (laughs) It must have been exhausting to be Paul's friend, right? Let's be honest. It must have been even more exhausting to be in Paul's head. But here's what I think Paul is after in these curious little verses. Paul wants us to connect all of this with the victory that God has accomplished in Christ that he's already alluded to in chapter 1 when he talked about the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. He said that back in chapter 1. That's victory language. And so now Paul reaches back a thousand years in history to Psalm 68 and pulls victory psalm out and puts it in front of us. So we get this one line from Psalm 68, it's verse 18, and it lands in verse 8 for us of chapter 4 of Ephesians. So here's something cool. Something incredible happened to Paul when he became a Christian. When Paul became a Christian, he started reading his Old Testament with Jesus goggles on. He started seeing Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament scriptures, including places like Psalm 68. So usually when a New Testament author quotes a line from the Old Testament, he usually has the, the larger context in view, not just that one line. That one line represents a bigger part. And, uh, and I think that's the case here. So um, 
Paul quotes from verse 18 of Psalm 68, which is right smack in the middle of Psalm 68. But let me just show you the first and last verses of Psalm 68. I think it's going to come up above my head. Psalm 68, 1 says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. And then the whole psalm goes on to talk about how God's victory over his enemies brings salvation for God's people. Okay, but how does God, who's already high and exalted, how does he arise to defeat his enemies? Well, Paul knows how. He knows this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus, this same Jesus who God raised from the dead in the ultimate victory over his enemies. And so then we get to verse 18 that Paul plops in front of us, and he, and he quotes it saying that when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Well, who's the one who ascended on high, but the one who also already descended in the form of a man to the point of a servant to the point of death? Paul knows that the what the author of Psalm 68, which is King David, Paul knows what King David didn't even know. He was writing about Jesus. He was writing about a victory Jesus was going to accomplish when he came to earth, laid down his life, was raised from the dead, and ascended back to where he came from. And when Jesus ascended back to heaven, he took the spoil from his victory and uh, distributed it among his people. That's the picture we see here. Remember, it's, not, it's when Jesus ascended to the Father that he sent his Holy Spirit to strengthen his church. So when Jesus ascended to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower his church. Psalm 68 ends with these words. It'll show up above my head, I think. Verse 35, the end of the psalm, says, Awesome is God in his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. That's exactly what Paul wants the church to understand. Christ is empowering and strengthening his church through giving out gifts among his people. I have to admit, it must have been really fun to study the Old Testament with Paul. Okay, that's 8 through 10. I think we made it out alive. I will not take any questions at this point. Okay, so back to Christ's design for his church. Let's look at a who, a what, a when, a why, and a how of our growth towards attaining further unity, starting in verse 11, the who. It says, And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. I'll stop there. Now, if we reach further back into verse 7, we we remember Paul said grace was given to who? Each one of us, according to to Christ's gift. And now we start to see some differences in how that's playing out. So first, he says that Jesus gave the church the apostles and the prophets. Okay, now, Paul has already mentioned the apostles and prophets twice in this letter, saying that the mystery of the gospel has now been revealed to them, and also saying that the church is now being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So they are a past tense gift to the church. 
They're the reason that we have the New Testament, and the church has been built on their testimony about Christ. They have been a gift to us. They remain a gift to us because we have these words. That's why we're a Bible-preaching church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets as recorded in the New Testament. So we're not here looking for some new message or some further revelation to pop up. We have the the New Testament, thanks to the Apostles and Prophets, which shines light on the Old Testament, as we've just seen, and Christ has deemed that sufficient to build his church upon. That's the first gift Paul names here. Next he says the evangelists. So these are the people who bring the gospel of Jesus to those who have not yet heard it. Now that's a past tense and an ongoing present tense gift to the church. Faithful men and women who proclaim Jesus, sometimes to thousands, sometimes to a neighbor next door. That's how the gospel advances. They're evangelists. We all have a part to play in evangelism, but there are some people who are particularly gifted for evangelism. That's a gift to the church. That's how the, that's how the church spreads. And then Paul says, and he gave shepherds and teachers, which actually is probably better translated shepherd teachers. And this is the role that we commonly refer to as pastors. Christ has given his church shepherd teacher pastors to do just that, to shepherd to watch over, to feed, to guide, to protect the church, primarily through teaching. And that is also an ongoing role within the church, an ongoing gift within the church. So these are particular roles that Paul wants to highlight that Christ has put in place for the sake of his church, and then he gives particular people to fill those roles in churches for the good and for the growth and the protection of his church. But notice those roles that we just listed and the people playing those roles, they're not actually the big deal. Do you notice that? They're actually servants to the big deal. They are given, verse 12 says, to equip the saints. That's the final who. The saints. The each one of us. Saints doesn't mean the the super holy, famous Christians that everyone's heard of. Saints means everyone who's united to Christ in faith. That's who Paul calls saints. Paul's talking about every member of the church. Raise your hand if you're a saint. Yes, that's right. Here's the big deal. This is why Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. This is the what. Move to the what, verse 12. Why? To equip the saints for what? The work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Now this is really important. This is really, really important. Who are the ministers of the church, according to Paul? The saints. If you just identified yourself as a saint, you just identified yourself as a gospel minister. I tricked you. You're an essential worker of gospel ministry. That's one of the things I love so much about this church is so many of you take that so seriously. 
You know that the, the ministers of this church are not the paid professionals. Thank God it's not up to us. You understand that no matter what your season of life is, no matter what your day job is, you are a gospel minister playing a crucial role in building up Christ's church. I have always loved that about being a part of this church. Now, this isn't one of the places where Paul goes into a lot of detail about the various gifts and various forms of ministry that, uh, that, 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 that this plays out in within the church. He does that other places, but let's just pay attention to what he does say right here. Back in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each and, every one of us, uh, each and every one of us has been gifted with grace for the building up of the church. There are no ungifted Christians. And then that curious little phrase, according to the measure of Christ's gift. I don't really know what to do with that other than to say, whenever I bemoan how averagely gifted I feel, I just have to return to Christ and be like, you know best. You know what you're doing. Whenever I see somebody else's gifts that I wish I had, I just turn to Christ and I say, this is according to your wisdom and your good design, and I'm just going to rest in that. It was purposeful, intentional. You have received specific gifts of grace that are intended to do good to the church, intended to build up the body of Christ. Everybody, every Christian, has been given grace. Okay, so uh, let's also peek at verse ahead at verse 16 for a second while we're here. And uh, this is what he says in verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So what else does he say about this ministry of believers? That each part has a proper role to play. And when we work properly, we grow. Growth happens when we play our parts properly. I'm not supposed to play your part. You're not supposed to play my part. And it's good that we're not all gifted in the exact same ways. One of the easiest things to do, I think, is to waste time wishing we had somebody else's gifts instead of using the ones we've been given. Each of us has a crucial part to play in the building up of this church. And Jesus has been wise and he has been generous and he has been kind and intentional in how he has distributed gifts even among our little, normal, local church. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing when he brings other gifted people together. He knows what he's doing. We don't have to figure it out, but we can trust him. So if you're sitting here and you feel like you must be the least gifted Christian in the room with nothing to contribute, I want to encourage you to take these words before Jesus and say, it says here that you've gifted everybody. Can you help me understand a little bit more of the role I'm supposed to play? And even further than that, I would encourage you, take that question, take that concern to your fellowship group this week, to people that know you and care about you, and just say, I don't feel gifted. I don't know what role I'm supposed to play. I don't know what I'm supposed to do to build up this body. Can you help me see ways you think I might be useful in this church? That would be a really, really good conversation to have this week as you gather with fellowship groups. We've said it here before, and I'll say it again. If you're not sure what kind of gifts you've been given, do this. Pay attention to the needs that God's put around you, and then see if there's anything you can do to meet them.
Best way to find your gifts. All right, let's move on to the when. So the fact that we're supposed to be busy building up the body of Christ implies that there's an ongoing need for growth. Now Paul tells us how far this thing needs to go. Look at verse 13. The when. When? Until we attain, there's the attain, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This growing goes on until we attain unity, till we attain unity in faith, until we attain a unity in our knowledge of the Son of God. Here's the unity we're growing into. This is the kind of thing that happens when we stand on the testimony of the apostles and prophets, when the word goes forth through evangelists, and as pastors teach and equip, and saints walk out the work of ministry. We are growing in unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, and it's happening right here. It's happening right here. It's happening around the world. He's doing it. He's doing it. It's usually hard to notice, but it's happening. It's incremental. It's usually unspectacular. But we're, we're growing. To, we're moving towards attaining this unity, this faith, this knowledge. And so, keeping with the imagery of the body, here's what that's going to look like when it's complete. Second half of verse 13. This is until we attain that unity to mature manhood which in the Greek is actually to a full-grown man. In to, to mature manhood, full-grown man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul's saying, you will be full-grown someday. You will be a full-grown church someday. You will be full-grown Christians someday, but you're not yet. You will be a perfectly suitable body for Jesus Christ, the head. That's coming. Look down at verse 15 real quick, which we'll get to shortly. He says, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We're growing into our head. Now, this means we've got some disproportionate head-to-body ratio going on right now. God's actually built this into creation to help us understand. You know that when a baby is in its mother's womb, the head accounts for about one half of the total size of the baby. And then by the time the baby's born, I don't know these things, I had to look them up. By the time the baby's born, the head is now, is then about one-fourth of the total size of the body. And then by adulthood, the body is grown into the head, and the head only takes up about one-eighth of the total size of the body. So we grow into our heads as we mature over time, which always makes me think of those bobblehead dolls that sports teams like to make and give out on game day, right? This bobblehead that's like way too big head, way too little body, and it's supposed to go on your dashboard or something. Brothers and sisters, if you can receive it, we are a bobblehead church. We're a bobblehead church. We've got this great big glorious head, Jesus Christ, and we're struggling to hold him up. It's just, it's just what Paul's telling us. I'm not trying to be mean. But Paul assures us that this is not our final form. And as our, we use our gifts to serve one another, we are growing into our glorious head together. Can you even imagine what it'll be like to be a part of Christ's mature body someday? What? 
any amount of team camaraderie you've ever experienced on a field, in an office, in a family, any amount of ecstasy you've experienced in accomplishing a goal with a group of people for some worthy cause will pale in comparison to what it's going to be like when we are part of the mature body of Christ with Christ as our head. It will be greater than anything we've ever experienced. I have no idea what I'm talking about, and it's all I want. I can't wait. We will together, with all of Christ's people, across the centuries, across the globe, be a suitable body to hold up our head someday. Look forward to that. All right, I kind of wish I could stop there because that's just fun to think about. But I promised you that there would be uh, a why and a how. So let's look at the why in verse 14. This is sobering, you guys. Why do we need to labor together for growth? Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I love going to the ocean. It's probably my favorite place to be other than right here. And Kimberly and I have loved taking our kids to the ocean from time to time. Going to the beach as a couple and going to the beach with toddlers are very different experiences. (laughs) When we go as a couple, we bring books, we take naps, we take walks. It's restful. When we go to the beach with toddlers, it's high alert all the time. Some of the scariest moments of my own life took place when I was about this big at a beach. The power of waves crashing, the pull of undertow, the force of a riptide, little kids stand no chance. This ought to humble us. Paul is telling us that at least most of us are still children or at least in the adolescent phase of our faith where we need to keep growing up. And that left to ourselves, we stand no chance against the wind of false teaching and clever scheming that are trying to pull us away or pull us under. We stand no chance. I'm not one of those people that believes that we're living in a day and age that's so much worse than every other point in history. But I will say, as far as winds of doctrine, human cunning, and deceitful schemes go, I don't think anyone's ever been more vulnerable than we are because we're inundated from every direction all day long. It's like a tsunami and a hurricane at the same time. Youth, teenagers, kids, young adults even, you are particularly vulnerable simply because growth takes time and because you are the target audience for much of the cunning and scheming that's in the air right now. The wise young person lives knowing you're vulnerable and under attack. And that's a direct plug for youth camp. Sign up today. (laughs) 
Brothers and sisters, we are vulnerable. We are easily deceived. There are some clever, cunning, attractive schemes all around us, tossing countless victims to and fro. We know this by experience. Some of you might even feel it in your own soul right now. We need each other. We need to stick together. We need to build each other up or we will be next. This ought to sober us. Let's look briefly at how we're supposed to do this. Verse 15. Instead of being tossed to and fro as children, Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is how we grow up together, speaking the truth in love. And actually, the word speaking isn't even in the original language. It's more like truthing in love, which certainly involves speaking, but I suppose more than that, maintaining, living, doing truth in love. We grow up in Christ as we walk together lovingly in the truth. It's why it's so important that our fellowship remains rooted and grounded in God's word. It's fine and fun for us to share common interests and talk about light and meaningful things like sports, movies, and weather, but that's not how we grow. That's not how we protect each other. That's not how we build each other up to carry Christ more steadily. When a church drifts from truth, no one is safe. And it's happening all around us. That shouldn't make us proud or self-righteous. It should make us grieve and it should make us vigilant. I always say this in any new member meetings I lead. The day this church lets go of the truth and priority of the biblical gospel, leave and drag me out with you. May it never happen. How do we guard each other? How do we build each other up so that we're not always kids who are easily led astray? We truth each other in love. We walk in truth. We walk in love. Intentionally. Regularly. Have to be in close proximity to do that. Have to be around each other to do that. This is Christ's design. It's a good design might not feel like you're helping anybody grow when you exhort them with a Bible verse in the middle of the week or when you pray for somebody and let them know you're thinking of them. It might not feel like you're contributing to anyone's growth, but according to Jesus, you are. And that's not nothing. Keep doing that. I want to turn the spotlight directly on us for just a minute here before we're done. I think it's right for us to examine ourselves honestly after meditating on a passage like we're doing right here. So let me just suggest a few questions that we might do well to ask ourselves in light of words like this. So in Christ's good design, Christians and churches are supposed to grow as every member uses his or her gifts properly for the good of others. So question number one that I'd encourage you to ask yourself this week, do I share Christ's concern for the unity, growth, and protection of his church? 
Do I share his concern? It's apparently a big deal to Jesus. Is it a big deal to me? What evidence can I look to to support my answer? All of us want to say yes, I assume. Do I share Christ's concern for the unity, growth, and protection of his church? Second question, is my church benefiting from the gifts that Christ has entrusted to me? Is my church benefiting from the the gifts that Christ entrusted to me? We're given gifts for a very specific reason. To serve each other, to encourage each other, to build each other up. So how can my church family benefit even more from my gifts? Third question I might ask is, am I contributing to the growth of this church body in truth and love? Am I contributing to the growth of this church body in truth and love? And what's that even looking like? What does that even look like right now in my life? Ask yourself these questions. I encourage you to ask them together with others, fellowship group, friends, around the lunch table. Uh, I think this is one of the ways that we can uh, resist the the temptation to be hearers and not doers of the word, to just sit and listen to something and not have it affect how we live. So that's the who, the what, the when, the why and how of Christ's design for the growth of his church. But I'm going to add one more as we close. It's the whom. The whom. Look back at verse 15, the end of verse 15. He says, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All of this is from Jesus. The gifts of grace, the different members of the body, the wise and beautiful design of every part playing a specific role, the unity we already share, the unity we get to grow into together, and even the growth itself. It's all from Jesus. It's his work. It's his plan. It's his power. And it's drenched in his love. What a beautiful home. We have a beautiful Savior. He cared for us in his living. He cared for us in his dying. And he's caring for us even now in his glory. And the primary way he's caring for us right now is through his spirit-gifted church, which he purchased with his own precious blood. Why do we do this? Is it worth the trouble? Jesus would seem to think so. He gave his life to make it possible. And he gave his spirit to bring us all the way to full-grown church where we can carry him as our head for all time. We're going to close our time together like we do every week, taking the